As I mentioned earlier, we have, uh, we're wrapping up our, our series today, The Bible, and uh, it's going to be Q&A. So, I have to start off by saying that I do not know everything. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. Um, I got a lot of great questions this week, hard questions. Um, they weren't softballs. You guys didn't take it easy on me. Um, and so uh, I, any of the answers that I have to these questions or any that I will give from the live from the floor are, uh, are my best that I can do. And uh, sometimes the Bible is very hard to understand. And so uh, we, we try our best. We navigate as best we can the Word of God. And we come up with our best guesses. There's some things that are clear. Uh, that are foundational, those are non-negotiables. But when these other questions come up, these tricky things about, well, what about this verse, or what about this issue here, and the Bible's not always entirely clear. And so um, keep that in mind today as we, as we, uh, as we do this, and, and if you know the answers that I give are not the same answers that you might give, that's okay, that's all right. Uh, we don't have to always agree on every little thing. Uh, we are, uh, we, Jesus has his arms open wide to all of us, and I guarantee you that I'm wrong on a couple things. Um, and uh, all of us, when we get to heaven, we're all going to go, oh, okay. But until then, we're just trying, doing our best. So, uh, the questions that I got via email, uh, I'm going to answer some of them now. I don't, if I answered all of them, we would probably be here way past lunch. Um, and so the ones that I don't get to today, I'm going to uh, do in a podcast, a bonus podcast. And any, if, if you're the one who asked it, I will also email you or contact you with the answer as well, so that if you don't listen to the podcast, you can at least get the answer to your question that I may not answer right now. So uh, the first question I want to tackle is this one. It says, I know that Satan is a fallen angel, but I'm not sure where this is written in the Bible. Where is this written in the Bible? that Satan is a fallen angel. All right. So this is one of those things where the Bible is not clear. Um, there was recently a, a huge blockbuster movie called Joker. Have you heard of this? Yes, this is the origin story of the great Batman villain, the Joker. And up until this movie came out, we'd never had an origin story of the Joker. We didn't know where he came from. He was just there. And unfortunately, there's no origin story for Satan in the Bible. Uh, there's nowhere where it's clearly laid out, this is the origin of Satan. We know he exists. That's clear, especially from the New Testament. Um, Jesus encountered demons and Satan, like, and Jesus talked a lot about Satan. So we know that he's there, but it's not entirely clear uh, how he got there, where he came from. Uh, what we... What we are pretty sure about, or at least what most Bible scholars agree about, is that Satan is a fallen angel, as the question says. Satan is a fallen angel. We can kind of speculate that, because we know that God alone is eternal. So Satan is not on equal footing with God. He's not an equal God, like an evil version of God. It's not like yin-yang kind of thing. Um, God is the only God. So Satan, because God alone is eternal, and because God created everything, it stands to reason that Satan must have been a created being, or is a created being of God. 
um, part of God's original, very good design of the world. And so if that's the case, I can't imagine, my logic can't imagine that God would create an evil force, um, but that God created angels as part of his original good creation and that there was a rebellion against God from some of these angels, including Satan. And so that's a logical conclusion, that Satan began as an angel, a powerful, beautiful angel. He started great, but like human beings, God gave the angels free will. And this angel chose to reject God's will and pursue his own will, to follow his own agenda in pursuit of his own glory, and in doing so sinned, leading to his banishment from heaven and his descent into evil. Now, there are some scriptures that we can look to to kind of pull some of this out of the Bible. Uh, and I put them on the screen. Um, there's two in the Old Testament, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And uh, both of these passages are not clear and they're not decisive. Um, but nonetheless, they do give us hints and people have used these, these passages in the past to possibly be uh, telling a bit of the story of how Satan came to be. But it's not entirely clear. That's where the word Lucifer comes from one of these passages, and that's one of the, the we've turned that into a name of Satan. Um, but that's not entirely clear from the scriptures that that's what it was meant for. But we have those two passages. <clears throat> we do know that the New Testament talks about angels who sinned. And so that gives us a big clue that there are angels who have sinned, and therefore that would make sense then that Satan could be an angel who sinned. Jude, Jude 6 says, it refers to angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. That's New Testament. Uh, 2 Peter 2.4 talks about the angels when they sinned. And in Revelation chapter 12, we have more, uh, we have more uh, sinning angels and Satan uh, and battling against God. So if we go to Revelation 12 and... Uh, There'll be some Bible turning today if you want to turn in the Bible. And there's Bibles in the seats in front of you if you don't have one with you. So Re Revelation 12 uh, and verses 3 to 4. Now here's the tricky thing about Revelation. You can't really build, base your theology on the book of Revelation necessarily because the book of Revelation is so full of symbolism and there's so many different ways to interpret the book of Revelation. It's really hard to say this is clearly... Anything. I mean, it's just, it's just so mysterious what happens in Revelation. But this is what it says in Revelation 12, verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. And we know that this dragon represents Satan. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations. So this is referring to Mary and to Jesus and Satan wanting to devour the child and sweeping a third of the stars of heaven down with him. And so that could be possibly, again, very unclear, but that could be a reference to a third of the angels of heaven, the stars of heaven, meaning angels, and that's not the first time that the Bible uses the word star in reference to an angel. So it could be that that is saying about that Satan fell from heaven and took a third of the angels with him, that he rebelled against God, took a third of the angels with him. So that is a possibility. 
Um, but again, none of these things are clear. They do give us clues. They lead us to believe that the general assumption about Satan being a fallen angel is probably true. Uh, but that being said, we can't be certain about it. What we can be sure about is that Satan does exist. His demons, his forces are real. If, if, there, if the Old Testament is unclear about it, the New Testament, the Gospels are very clear. Uh, and Paul's letters are clear about the reality of our enemy Satan. Um, and so we know, but the other thing we know is that because God is ultimately on the throne and God is the one who has power over all things ultimately and is the creator of all things, that Satan is, uh, he's fighting a losing battle. This is what we know about Satan for sure, is that in the end, God wins. Uh, God is finally going to eliminate him and his demons once and for all because God has the final say. There's an old, um, there's an old gospel song that says, I've read the back of the book and we win. <laughs> you ever heard that one? I think it was Gold City maybe. All right, so that's the first question. Hopefully that helps. Um, and the next question kind of flows into that question, and it's this. Is there potential for sin to reoccur in heaven and for there to be another fall? Right? So if God gave us free will in Eden and Adam and Eve created in perfection with their free will, tempted by Satan, then acted on that free will and chose to sin, thus leading to the fall of mankind and the brokenness of everything, is it possible that in the final heaven when Jesus comes back and restores earth and it's like a new Eden and everything is wonderful, is it possible that then we could have another fall because we will have free will? Is it possible that we could choose to sin in that scenario and start the whole thing all over again? Well, that's a good question. I am of the opinion that Adam and Eve would never have chosen to sin if they hadn't been tempted by Satan. Okay? They had freedom, they had free will, but their free will, their will was perfectly in love with God. And even though they had free will, they were in their own nature unwilling, in their free will, unwilling to disobey God. They loved Him perfectly. It was true perfection. They had no sinful nature. It didn't exist yet. Uh, and so their will was, was sanctified. Their will was perfect. But it was only when Satan entered into the equation, when Satan tempted them, that it began to spark a curiosity in them that led to them acting on their free will and committing a sin. And so the difference, and that's my opinion on it, but the difference is that in the final heaven, when Jesus comes back and he establishes his kingdom forever on earth, uh, is that Satan will be gone completely from the equation forever and ever and ever, uh, as, of, as we just mentioned. So we can read that, actually, in Revelation 20. It says, uh, the devil, this is talking about the future. This has not happened yet. What has happened here in these, these last couple of chapters, two and a half chapters of Revelation, uh, are future events. Now, about the rest of Revelation, that's debatable, whether or not that's future or past or whatever. There's a lot of discussion about that. In fact, our men's Tuesday morning Bible study is dealing with that. So 
If you're interested, men, in Revelation and how to interpret it and all of that stuff, come to our Tuesday morning men's Bible study. Um, but for sure, the last couple of chapters of Revelation, probably the second half of 20 and the end, and the last two chapters, are future. And it says this in uh, 20 verse 10, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. There will never be a chance again in the, f- in the final future heaven for Satan to tempt us. So yes, we will have free will, but it, we will, just like the Garden of Eden, just like Adam and Eve were, we will be perfectly in love with God and with one another unwilling to disobey God. So our sinful nature will be removed. Our will will be totally sanctified. There will be no opportunity for temptation because Satan will be gone forever. So therefore, as the Bible promises in Revelation 21 and 22, there will indeed be no more sin, death, crying, suffering. We can trust that promise because God is going to once and for all eliminate all evil. Literally, and symbolically throwing Satan and evil and temptation and all wickedness in the lake of fire. Hey, that's good news. All right, so that's my take on that question. Next one. How will we be raised from the dead when Jesus returns? There's a theme here in these first few questions, all about this future stuff. Uh, how, will be, how will we be raised from the dead when Jesus returns? So there is going to be a future resurrection of believers. This is one of our great and glorious hopes as Christians. And if you have time, sometime, read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection chapter. It's all about the resurrection of Jesus and our future resurrection. Jesus was the first fruits. He was the first pickin', and we are the second pickin'. So Jesus, uh, he, was, he was the first fruit. He, was, when he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. Uh, when uh, after his, re- his, his uh, crucifixion, he was the first fruits, and, and when he comes back one day, there will be a resurrection, and we will join him. And so let me just read a couple of verses in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 52. It says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That means that Not all of us are going to die because there will be some people alive on the earth when Jesus returns. So we shall not all sleep or die, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. So, what that's talking about is when Jesus comes back, and there's going to be a resurrection, and we are going to get new bodies. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 also talks about this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who are dead that you may not grieve as, as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, the first fruits, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, 
who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I love that passage of Scripture. Man, that's our hope. That's our hope. So, the question, how will we be raised? We will be raised from the dead just like Jesus was. Our physical remains will literally be resurrected and transformed miraculously into perfected and yet recognizable bodies just like Jesus' was. When Jesus rose, they still recognized him as Jesus, and yet there was stuff that Jesus could do. He could teleport and, and different things. that You know, it was weird. Um, and, and we're going to be like that. We're going to have physical bodies. Our, his body wa- that was in the tomb was gone. It's going to be the same body. So the body, so, you know, you don't want to be in a cemetery on the day that Jesus comes back. It's going to be creepy, right? It's a night of the living dead kind of thing going on. Um, um, <laughs> but, so, and so the, uh, one of the questions that comes out of that, and I think maybe underlying the question, I forget who it was who asked me this, but I think underlying the question was, is the, uh, is the question, well, what about, you know, people who've been cremated or people who, who have died, you know, a thousand years ago and it's, they're just dust now, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, you know, literally, um, how is that going to work? Um, you know, what if my molecules grew grass and a cow ate it and then I ate the cow and now part of me is in some other person? Um, you know, well, um, well, <laughs> well, the whole thing from the get-go is a miracle. So let's assume safe to assume that God can reconstitute molecules, he can multiply molecules like he did uh, many with the loaves and fishes. God can create something from nothing. He's able to do that, and uh, he can make it happen. So there w- we will be raised and transformed into perfected bodies, and then we will live forever with the Lord in the new heaven and new earth. Next question. This kind of leads us into the next question. Was the feeding of the 5,000 a miracle of multiplication or a miracle of heart transformation to share food that people were keeping for themselves? So some people speculate that in this story... Well, let me read it first. Um, It's in all four Gospels, but we're going to read it from John's Gospel. This is the only... um, I think the only recorded miracle of Jesus that's in all the Gospels, aside from the resurrection. In John 6, in the first 14 verses of John chapter 6, says this. Uh, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover... The feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Uh, He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of these to get a little. 
One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. By the way, it says the men were about 5,000 in number, which likely means that there were also women and children there, meaning the number was more than 5,000. Could have been as many as 15,000, 20,000. We don't know. <clears throat> Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Now, some people have speculated that this story is a story of of, uh, of Jesus's, uh, his, the miracle that he did was the miracle of convicting people's hearts to share the food that they had hidden. That everybody had some food they were keeping to themselves, and some people had more that they were keeping to themselves. And that Jesus, uh, through his words or through a miracle of heart transformation, um, convinced everyone to share, and that's what happened. Um, now, there's actually really no reason uh, to believe that that's what happened. There's every reason to believe that this was a genuine miracle, that Jesus literally multiplied this bread and this fish in a miraculous way, that it just kept going and going and going and going, and there was leftovers. Um, uh, it's, it's, the story's not trying to make a point about sharing. There's no indication that that's the point. Uh, the point in the context is that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is God, that he's doing signs and wonders, to prove his divinity. In fact, that's the whole theme of John's gospel is, is the divinity of Jesus. And so uh, that's, that, that's probably what's happening here. Um, I know it's more logical to believe that it wasn't a true miracle, but if you are going to start going down that path, you might as well throw out the whole Bible um, because uh, you're going to find that there's a few places that give you trouble if you can't accept that miracles are real. I think another clue here uh, is... In verse 14, when the people, after Jesus has done this miracle, say, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Now, who would they be thinking about? We mentioned it last week about the prophet. Who's the great prophet of the Old Testament? Elijah. Elijah, right? And so Elijah kind of is the, he's sort of like the godfather of the prophets. And, and so... Um, they're thinking, he's like the new Elijah, right? Look, the prophet has come. The new Elijah has come. And that was sort of prophesied to be one of the signs of the end times, right? And, and so Jesus is ushering in the end. He's ushering in the kingdom. And, and he's the new Elijah. Well, it just so happens that Elijah performed a very similar miracle to this. In 1 Kings 17, uh, we can read about that, where there's a woman and her child who were starving. There was a famine in the land. And they had only just a handful of flour left in their jar. And Elijah comes to visit and he says, please, can you make me some bread? And she's like, oh, I've only got a handful of flour left. I was about to make some bread to eat me and my son, and then we were going to die. You know, we're just going to plan to die because there's no more food. And then Elijah says, no, 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 you're not going to die. God's going to do a miracle, and you're going to have never-ending flour and oil so that you can keep making bread until the famine is over. And that's exactly what happened. The jar just never got empty. 
And that was a miracle that Elijah performed. And, and then there's, Jesus did the same thing, and they go, oh, he's the new Elijah. So I think that's what was happening there. All right, one more, and then we'll go to the floor. Um, if, next question there. Okay, go, we're going to skip that one and go to the next one. Uh, if the Old Testament is the shadow and Jesus is the substance, so that was last week's message, did anyone get saved in the Old Testament? That's a really good question. They're all really good questions. And the answer to this question is yes. In, in a similar way that we are saved now under the new covenant by God's grace through faith. Uh, the New Testament answers this question for us in Romans chapter 4. So... If you have your Bible, again, turn Romans 4. And we hear about Abraham. And it says this. The first few verses. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him or credited to him as righteousness. Okay? And so, Abraham was considered righteous in God's eyes, but it wasn't because he obeyed God perfectly. It was because he trusted God. He had faith. Abraham's faith, so we're talking Old Testament now, Old Testament Abraham, had faith in God, what's what made him righteous? It wasn't, it wasn't his obedience or his circumcision. It was, or any other outward act. It was his obe- his obedience was an outward sign of an inward reality that he trusted God, and so God, by His grace, considered Abraham righteous or saved because of his faith. And after Abraham came the law of Moses, which included the sacrificial system. And this, in large part, is what the New Testament's referring to when it says that the Old Testament is the shadow of, of what was to come of Jesus. Um, the Old Testament sacrificial system, in that situation, God is saying to the Israelites, do this and I'll forgive your sins. Sacrifice these animals and I'll forgive your sins. So they did that, or at least some of them did that. They trusted in God's promise to forgive their sins, and so they obeyed. Again, it wasn't that their uh, adherence to the law was what saved them. It was that their trust in God, that God said, if you do this, uh, then I will forgive you. And therefore, they did it because they trusted God. And because of that faith and trust in God, then God showed grace to them and saved them because of their faith. There was no power in the blood of the bulls and goats or anything like that nature. There was no actual power take away sin. The sacrifice of the animals didn't somehow magically erase their sins. But God, because they demonstrated faith and obedience, through obedience, extended His grace to them. So if we go to Hebrews now, Hebrews chapter 10, uh, and uh, we get this again here in Hebrews 10. It says this, verses 1 to 4. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, consider the true form of these realities, it can never, the law, the sacrificial system, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? 
since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So in the Old Testament sacrificial system, there was no power in the sacrifices, in the blood of those animals, to actually take away sins. That's what this is saying. Otherwise, they could have done it once, and that would have been it. Uh, There's no power to make perfect or to make righteous or to save those who, who do that. Verse 11, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ... Here's the substance of the shadow. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet when he returns. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So while there was no actual power in the blood of the bulls and goats, the Old Testament sacrificial system, there is real power in the blood of Jesus. It only has to happen once for all time. No more sacrificial system necessary. Jesus did it. Praise God. Amen. Stampsies, no erases. All right? What what Jesus accomplished was so much better. Once for everyone, for all time, never again. There was actual power in Jesus' death. There is real power in his blood. And when we place our faith in him and his actions, we are saved again by God's grace through faith. Now, a question that arises from this, though, yeah, amen. And if you haven't done that yet, if you've never trusted in Christ, you need to do that. That's right. What are you waiting for? Um, but there's a question that, another question that comes out of this question that wasn't asked, but may have been underlying the question, and that is, did anyone go to heaven before Jesus' uh, death and resurrection? It's a different question. So, did anyone get saved? Abraham, he he was counted as righteous, um, righteous in God's eyes, but did he go to heaven? So that's, there's more debate on that. I think it's pretty clear the the answer to the first question, but uh, some say yes, that all the Old Testament saints who had faith, as we just explained, like Abraham, went to heaven when they died. Uh, Others, myself included, were not so sure about that. I've heard people say, you know, that in the old, uh, we in our in, in today's age, we look back on what Jesus did on the cross, and that's how we get saved. And in the Old Testament times, they looked ahead to what Jesus did on the cross, and that's how they got saved and went to heaven. And I've heard that, and it sounds nice, but I don't know where you read that in the Bible. I don't see that in Scripture, actually. Um, and maybe you, again, like I said at the start, you might be able to say, no, here it is, Pastor, but I don't see it. But so my thinking on this is is um, that when I read the Old Testament and I read about what happened to the dead, the souls of the dead, so our bodies and souls are separated. When we die, our body goes in the ground, and our soul is separated and, and goes to an afterlife of some sort. What I read in the Old Testament is not that people went to heaven or hell, but they everybody went to the same place. In the Hebrew, the word is Sheol, and in the Greek, the word is Hades, I'm referring to the same spot. And this is a temporary uh, abode of the dead, a waiting place, uh, for as we await for the future events. So that's what I read. Um, body in the ground, soul to the abode of the dead. Sheol in the Hebrew, Hades in the Greek. Uh, and, and my thinking, and you may disagree, is that the righteous saved Old Testament saints like Abraham 
went to a part of that place, but it was separated into two parts. You can read that in Luke 16, where Jesus alludes to that. Uh, and, uh, and that Abraham and others went to this place of joy and rest in Sheol uh, called paradise. Uh, now, again, up for debate. But when Jesus died on the cross, he said to the man, he didn't say, today you'll be with me in heaven. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise, which I think means this part of Sheol or Hades. Um, and that the righteous, un the unrighteous, unsaved, from the time prior to Jesus in the Old Testament period, went to a, a different part of Sheol or Hades, a place of torment. And we catch a, again, a catch a glimpse, a catch a glimpse of that in Luke 16. You can read that sometime when Jesus tells this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. <clears throat> so, to me, that seems to be the teaching of the Bible makes sense, and that if you consider that it wasn't until Jesus' death that anyone's sins could be truly atoned for, as we read in Hebrews that even though God counted them as righteous, that they weren't made righteous yet because there was no real power. Maybe, I don't know. And so um, they couldn't actually enter the presence of God until Jesus' death on the cross chronologically in time. Jesus died on the cross, accomplished the payment for their sin, the Old Testament righteous saints who were in Hades or Sheol, and then now their souls are released to be with heaven, and now paradise is in heaven with God. And when we die, our souls go to be with God in heaven. Uh awaiting the resurrection in the future when we enter the final heaven and new earth. Now that's a whole big long thing and uh, there's a lot of details in there that I skipped over very quickly. Uh, it's a whole sermon, maybe a whole sermon series. Um, uh, but I think that's defendable through scripture. Now, as I said, there's going to be a bonus podcast. Some of the questions that are going to be addressed in that. Hebrews 8.13 says the law is becoming obsolete. What about what Jesus said in Matthew 5? Which books didn't make it into the Bible? Uh, parables. Was Jesus trying to make things clearer for people or harder for people to understand? Mark chapter 4, for example. Uh, and state of the church. Why don't we hear more preaching on sin and repentance? Those are some of the questions that I got. I didn't have time to answer now. But I want to give you a chance. I know that we kind of have run out of time already. But uh, we've got lunch here, so you don't have to take off and go home. So we're going to take a minute and have a couple of questions at least. Who wants to go first? Did anyone come prepared? And no one's going to be mad at you if you get up and ask a question. Uh, yes. We're going to... Um, Steve, can you run the mic to her, please? You don't have to get out of your seat there. Steve, you can be my runner, okay? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you can go to the next slide, please. Yeah. I have asked this question before, and it's in Luke 16. Yeah. Um, one question both Don and I had was, um, did the disciples actually understand all his parables? And the one that confused me, and you did very graciously post a little video and, and an explanation of it, but I'm still confused. The parable of the shrewd manager where, mm. um, well, he cheated, he cheated his, the owner of property that he was working on. But the manager commends him because the manager was dishonest. Mm -hmm. uh, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Yeah. I tell you, 
use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Yeah. Help. Okay. Help, please. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Lynn. Yeah, so that is a, that is a, a some of the Jesus' parables, and, and in the podcast, I'm going to talk about how sometimes his parables weren't clear and maybe on purpose. Um, but um, this one is one of the hardest ones to understand because Jesus is using this illustration of this manager who does a bad job of dealing with his, his, his boss's money, and, uh, and therefore he gets fired. And, uh, and so then the manager goes out, or the steward, or whatever, you know, he's, he's like his finance guy. The finance guy goes out, and, uh, and there's all these outstanding debts that are owed to the, to the boss. And so he goes and he collects from these people, but he doesn't collect the full amount. He only collects part uh, of what is owed uh, to the boss. And then he comes back to the boss, and, and the boss, you know, he commends him. You'd think he would say, what are you doing? I fired you, and yet you go out and you collect half of what's owed to me. And You know, you'd think that the boss would be mad and say, you know, I'm going to cast you into outer darkness. But instead he says to the manager, wow, hey, that was pretty smart. Good job. Like, you know, you know, uh, you know very uh, sneaky, <laughs> tricky. Uh, uh, but, but, you know, you outsmarted me on this one. Good job, shrewd manager. Um, and then Jesus says, kind of makes the point and says, uh, you know, isn't it interesting that people in the world seem to be better with, uh, you know, uh, handling money and, and, and uh, make, making money and income and stuff uh, than, than Christians are, you know? And uh, maybe we need to be using money more wisely, uh, more shrewdly, more intentionally, more thoughtfully um, in order to, and it says... Uh, be welcomed into the kingdom by people. So what is that about? I think that what Jesus is saying there is, he's talking about money. It's a parable about how we handle money. That's the context of, this, of, of uh, what's happening here in this whole section. He's, he's talking about money. And I think he's saying we need to be wise with money. He's not saying that we need to be dishonest. Uh, but he, he's using this story as an example of a person who was wise with money. Even though he was fired uh, and, and was sneaky, he, he was kind of, um, in a way, uh, securing his own future. He got fired, uh, but he goes out and he, he, he makes favors with these people that owe money. Uh, and as a result, secures his own future. And, and the, the boss says, yeah, I recognize. That was pretty clever. And likewise, we need to be smart with money. We need to be thoughtful with money, how we handle money, investing it, in wise ways so that, as it says, um, uh, so that when it fails, so we need to make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now what that is saying, because that's weird, okay, make friends with, so use money, which, you know, unrighteous money, use just, it's a, it's a thing that can be used for evil, but instead take this money and use it to win friends who will then follow Jesus, and then they will welcome you into heaven. So it's like you imagine that uh, when you go to heaven, there's going to be a welcoming party, and all these people are going to be lined up, and you're going to go, oh, I'm in heaven, I'm here. And all these people are lined up saying, yay, welcome, Michael, I'm so glad you made it. And then someone is going to be there. A few people are going to be there and say, Michael, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, because I am part of the reason that you're here. Or, I, I, you are part of the reason that I'm here. Sorry, you are part of the reason that I'm here. 
you know, you gave money to that missionary. Uh, and that missionary told me about Jesus. And now I'm here in heaven. Uh, or, or you supported that church. And that church is where I met Jesus. And, and now I'm here in heaven. And so use unrighteous money is what Jesus is saying. So that, let me read it again. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, when money fails, uh, they may receive you. Those people may receive you into the eternal dwellings. I think that's what that parable is getting at. Okay, hopefully that helps. I wish Jesus sometimes would just make it clear. Um, thank you. Anyone else? Somebody told me they were going to ask me to explain the Trinity. It was like the most impossible thing to do. Let's have one more. Oh, we got Brother uh, Howard back here. Just wait and use the microphone, please, so we can get that on the recording. Not long, not long ago, Michael and I were, uh, were speaking about things of confusion in the Bible, and I mentioned that if it wasn't for faith that the Trinity would be a very, very difficult thing for me to comprehend from my practical mind because Christ prays to his Father. He depends on his Father. Um, he is going to go home to be with his Father. And um, the mathematics of it doesn't work. And I do know that I'm a great-grandfather, and I'm a grandfather, and I'm a father, and I'm a husband, um, and friends to some people, so I guess I'm a double trinity, but um, it, it, it doesn't quite work for me in that thought. So that uh, that's where my difficulty comes in. It's the mathematics of the trinity and the fact that he, he, is, he is a born son. And, and I know all the theories, and I believe them all, but I believe them through my faith not through the practical. Right. So is, is, is there a question in there? Is the question, you know, try to, try to explain the Trinity in some capacity? Okay. So I actually brought a whiteboard because I anticipated this question. Okay. <clears throat> so the Trinity is definitely impossible for the human mind to comprehend. Um, but there have been some attempts over the years to try to um, explain it, and um, most of them fall short, right? Um, most of them actually promote a heresy of some capacity. Um, so if, you know, you do the, th uh, the three-leaf clover, saying three parts of one whole, well, that's not actually the Trinity. Or if you talk about water being in three separate states, um, that's not actually the Trinity either because it can only be in one state at a time. Um, that's modalism. So, I mean, like, there's different, it's the, each one promotes a different heresy. So it's really impossible to, to actually fully explain the Trinity. But we do know that the Bible teaches uh, three simultaneous truths. The Bible teaches that God is one. There's only one God, and he is one. The Bible also teaches uh, that Jesus is God, that the Holy Spirit is God, that the Father is God. And it also teaches that God is three distinct persons. Okay, so there's, there was an ancient, uh, there's an ancient thing called the shield of the Trinity. 
from, I don't know, the 1500s or something, which I think, it, ju it just basically takes these three truths and puts them into one image, and for me, it's been the most helpful thing for me to process the Trinity, even though it still doesn't really make sense to the human brain. But it says, okay, so we have God, and hopefully you can see this. We have Jesus, the Son, we have the Holy Spirit, and we have the, f the Father, So, right? Okay, so we have three distinct persons of the Trinity. And they are all each individually God. Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Father is God. Okay? So this is God is one, three distinct persons. Each, each one. The Bible says Jesus is God. The Bible says the Father is God. The Bible talks about the Holy Spirit being God. And at the same time, they're not each other. Okay? So Jesus is not the Father. Jesus is not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not Jesus. And the Father is not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Father. So this is the shield of the Trinity. It takes those three simultaneous biblical truths and it puts them into one image. And so this is our one God. He's this community of three persons, and yet he is one. It's, uh, that's the best we can do, probably. Um, and you can Google that and, and get an image of it on, on your computer. Um, essentially, God is one in being and three in person. It's like, I'm a human being. That's what I am. Uh, but who I am is Michael Fredericks. That's, that's the person that I am. So I am, I, what I am is a human being. Who I am is Michael. Uh, God, the what he is, is one. The who he is, is three. He is Jesus. He is the Father. He is the Holy Spirit. But he is one God. That's the best we can do. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it, you know, our brains are finite. Uh, it's like trying to understand God I've heard this said before, it's like trying to fit the ocean into a cup, right? You can go to the ocean, you can scoop up a little bit of, of it into a cup, and you can get a little taste of it, uh, but the ocean is so much greater than what you can fit into a cup, and our brains are but a cup compared to who God is. And I tell you, honestly, I wouldn't know, I don't know if I would want to worship and serve a God who I could fully understand with my human brain. To me, the fact that he is ineffable, he is indescribable, he is unable to understand, to me, that's part of the reason why I worship him. Amen. All right. Should we wrap it up, or does anyone else have a burning question? I just want to say that John 1, verse 14. Yes. John 1, 14. The Word became flesh. So Jesus, the living Word, the pre-incarnate Jesus, is known as the Word of the Logos in the Hebrew, or in the Greek, uh, and he became flesh. Yeah, absolutely. So he, he, he took on flesh and became Jesus and dwelt among us. Alan's got a question. Jesus is the Son of God. That's a title. So Jesus being Son of God is a title. He's not literally the Son of God. He's not literally, you know, birthed by God. Although he, his physical incarna incarnation is a physical birth. Uh, the title Son of God is a title. He is not literally a created being. So yes, he was born in the incarnation, but he existed before that. He existed eternally 
forever and ever, in eternity past, God was always three. In fact, uh, if you go to Genesis chapter 1, right at the beginning, well, first of all, John 1, as was mentioned already, says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's talking about Jesus. So in the very beginning, before everything ever was created, Jesus was God and was with God. But it says, um, and uh, let me see here. In uh, Genesis chapter 1 and verse um, 26, when God creates humanity, God speaks in plural about himself. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Why would God speak of himself in the plural? Because from all eternity past, this is God. He is three persons. All right. Let's call that a day. That's good. Thank you, Steve.